Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Hello, one and all. Welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. We are now looking at the number ones on my chart in the year 2006. Ah, 2006. The year of, uh, snakes on a plane. Uh, oh yeah, that was also the year that Pluto was officially designated not a planet. That was one of the first social media outrages I can remember. I was smack dab in the middle of the college experience. And let me just say right at the top, some years are better than others, and personally, 2006 was not a good year for me. I won't get into it on this podcast, because it's about music, not, not mental health is my radar. As with other years, there's some pretty good music that I put at the top of the charts, so... Let's not waste any more time, let's get to it. Starting off the week ending January 7th, 2006, with two weeks at number one, it's 10cc with Rubber Bullets. When I mention the group 10CC, what usually comes to mind to the average music listener is their big hit, I'm Not In Love, or their not quite as big, but still pretty big hit, The Things We Do For Love. But that is only part of the story for that group. Rubber Bullets was their very first single they had released, hitting number one in the UK in June 1973. And throughout their debut album 10CC, and the next three by them, The band was comprised of two factions that sat side-by-side mostly comfortably. You had the pure pop side, represented by Eric Stewart and Graham Goldman, both veteran popster guys from the 60s, and the crazy experimental side, represented by Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream. And these two competing sensibilities made for some wonderful music. Where Stewart and Goldman were more sincere, Godley and Cream were a lot more smart-ass. And it was the latter two who were the main brainchilds of Rubber Bullets. As was the theme in the UK 1973, this is a little bit of a 50s throwback. In this case, almost an updating of Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock. In both songs, there's a party at the old jailhouse. 
But while in Jailhouse Rock, even the warden and the cops are having fun, in Rubber Bullets, the police decide to put a stop to the whole thing using, well, rubber bullets. According to Song Facts, this was, quote, a more likely outcome, end quote. <laughs> That's probably right. Now, according to the group, the setting of this song is an American jail, with terms like National Guard and the County Jail, and that's probably why the lead singer has that exaggerated American accent. They said it was inspired by the Attica State Prison riots in 1971, or like in the old James Cagney films. But there was some unfortunate timing of the song's release, because rubber bullets themselves were invented in 1970 by the British Ministry of Defense, for their police to use during the Troubles in Northern Ireland that were very rampant at the time. The band were pleasantly surprised that the BBC didn't ban this song, although they did limit its airplay, so to not encourage any rioting like during the Troubles. Leaving that baggage aside, this song is a gas to listen to for me. It's an easy trick, almost cliche, to do one of those songs that are updated for modern times. If you want an example on how it's done wrong, Listen to the Beach Boys 1971 song, Student Demonstration Time, in which that idiot Mike Love rewrites Riot in Cell Block 9 to include the Kent State shootings and all those other uprisings on campuses. But meanwhile here, this is not serious at all. My favorite line by far is at the end of the song, We all got balls and brains, but some's got balls and chains. <laughs> balls. And in the grand 10CC tradition, it's a multi-section song. Aside from those throwback verses and that somewhat throwback chorus, Load Up Your Rubber Bullets, there's this weird guitar solo that was heavily processed and doctored in the studio, and even a mid-song breakdown where the tempo remains fast but all the instruments drop out, it's just a cappella, with some mock serious vocals, probably harkening back to 1966 Beach Boys. But then it quickly gives way to one more verse, one more chorus, and it goes out on that crazy guitar solo too. It packs a lot of ideas into five minutes, and even though parts of it were cut out for the single, it still tickles me to see something this weird top the UK charts. And even though it only hit number 73 in the US, that's still pretty good for a song that was so out of touch with 1973 music in America. It makes me happy. Moving on. Replacing 10cc at the summit position, it's Music Is My Radar's one and only look at the critically acclaimed Kate Bush. She spent three weeks at number one starting January 21st with Wuthering Heights. Walk through, walk through, walk through the heights 
It started a little bit the previous year, 2005, but in 2006, I continued to really study the British charts of yesteryear and what songs made number one and what songs of those didn't do anything here in America, making for some really cool discoveries on my part. Matter of fact, this was the second of three straight UK number one singles to hit number one on my charts. And of the three, this was the most unconventional by far. Kate Bush wrote this song at the age of 18 and performed it at the age of 19. It was her first single she'd ever released, so there was no big fanfare about it. But it took Britain by storm. It was number one for four weeks in March 1978. Obviously, I wasn't there at the time, but I can easily imagine there was a sense of, what the hell is this? The popular music at the time was disco and, of course, ABBA, whom Kate Bush knocked off of number one, their song being Take a Chance on Me. But this song was art pop slash art rock, sung by a young lady with a helium voice. And, of course, a rare literary number one. Yep, this was based on the Emily Bronte book, Wuthering Heights. No, I'd never read that book, and at the time of the recording, neither had Kate Bush. She'd only flipped through the book and got the main gist of it. She'd also seen the movie adaptation with Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon. In the song, Kate Bush takes on the persona of Catherine Earnshaw, or the ghost of Catherine Earnshaw, I believe, Kathy. And one of the most famous lines in the book is paraphrasing the chorus, Let me in your window, I'm so cold. I'm guessing that's the ghost of Kathy after she died, haunting Heathcliff. That love story between Kathy and Heathcliff is supposed to be one of the most romantic and tragic in all of literature, but like I said, I've never read the book. I don't really plan on doing so. I'll just talk about this song instead. I'm sure it was very polarizing on the time of release. Her voice is very high-pitched, as it was on the rest of her debut album, The Kick Inside. Probably a love-it-or-hate-it proposition for people. And at the time, a lot of the music press called it a novelty. And yeah, I think in the wrong ears, it can come across as very annoying. Plus, it's a very theatrical reading. Might remind you of those annoying people you knew in high school theater, who were always acting dramatic. But of course, as we would later find out, Kate Bush was no novelty indeed. She had a run of very successful albums, both commercially and critically, and several other songs of hers hit my charts. I do know one of my friends from the web reviewing community is a pretty big fan of hers. He even went all the way to London just to see a rare concert of hers a couple years ago. I'm not as much of a fan as he is, but I do like and respect her work. And there's still more albums of hers I really need to hear, like The Dreaming or Hounds of Love. That's the one with Running Up That Hill. That would spend two weeks at number two in February of 2006, right behind R.E.M. Hashtag mini spoiler alert. On the week ending February 11th, it's the third straight song that hit number one in the UK in the 70s, hitting the top of my charts. For one week, it's Wizard with Angel Fingers.
and welcome back to The Many Musical Lives of Roy Wood. As you might remember, he was in The Move, that 60s freakbeat group that I highlighted twice in the 2005 episodes, after co-founding the Electric Light Orchestra in 1972 along with Jeff Lynne. He left the group just as quickly as it began. From what I read, issues with the management, nothing to do with him or Jeff Lynne. Which is good. Everybody loves Jeff Lynne, right? Anyway, Wizard were a very short-lived band. Only had three albums, only lasted from late 72 to 1975. But in their short existence, they had two number one singles in the UK, and several other ones that hit the top ten. Angel Fingers was the second of their two chart toppers over there. The first being See My Baby Jive. That did peak at number two a month before this one, right behind 10cc's Rubber Bullets. Meanwhile, their most well-known song actually didn't hit number one. Their holiday classic, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Like all of their songs, it was not a hit here in the U.S., but I'm pretty sure it's gotten the rounds in department stores or covers by other groups. I'm considering doing a Christmas episode sometime in December. I might mention that one and play a sample. That one also peaked at number two in December 2005, right behind TVC15 and If There Is Something. Now, of those big three wizard songs, I'm in the minority, but I think my favorite is Angel Fingers. They're all very similar, obviously. Super, super produced, 50s retro, with the glam lens. But Angel Fingers distinguishes itself by using that standard Phil Spector beat from Be My Baby, boom, 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 clap, whereas the other two are more straight-ahead stompers, kind of like Waterloo by ABBA. There isn't too much to say about this song. Keeping with the 50s retro theme, it obviously is not deep at all. But it's somewhat interesting that the UK beat the US in the 50s retro craze by about a year or so. This single in particular was released one month after American Graffiti was released in theaters in the US, and that was a birth of our 50s nostalgia that took place in the 70s, following with Happy Days, etc. And of course, this kind of nostalgia would have been second-hand in the UK, as they got the rock and roll thing from here in America. And while they had their share of artists who adapted that sound and had great hits, a lot of the same acts like Elvis Presley were quite popular in the charts in the UK. So it's kind of interesting to see it from that prism. Again, Angel Fingers to me is more about the production than anything else. Overwhelms me in a wonderful way. Even more weird, those three singles were released around the same time as their album Wizard Brew, which is sort of glammy, but really proggy too, with 12 minute long songs and whatnot. So yeah, that there eccentric Roy Wood was living a double life even within his own band. What a unique character. For the next number one, we finally step out of the UK. With two weeks to number one starting February 18th, it's our old boys R.E.M. The first two songs on Life's Rich Pageant, Begin the Begin and These Days. Check out samples from both songs.
to meet each one of you and you, me, you, if I can, and I can. <laughs> couldn't help myself. Now, just a few episodes ago, I talked about the importance of having a great one-two blast to start off the album. This is when I talked about the Clash albums London Calling and Sandinista. The former kicked off with London Calling and Brand New Cadillac, while Sandinista kicked off with the rap Magnificent Seven and the more 60s mod soul, Hitsville, UK. These two songs begin the begin in these days that kick off R.E.M.'s fourth album, Life's Rich Pageant, from 1986, are very comparable to the London Calling brand new Cadillac 1-2 punch. They're such great companion pieces, I can't listen to one without the other, almost. The last time we saw these guys on Music Is My Radar was their first album, Murmur. They would never again record an album quite like Murmur, and even though it's my favorite album of theirs, it's to their credit that they didn't try and do the same thing over again. Their next album, 1984's Reckoning, was a little more accessible and closer to college rock. I paid it a little attention in early 2002, but not enough to put any of its singles on my chart. Which is too bad, because the first two songs on that album, Harbor Coat and Seven Chinese Brothers, would have made for a great number one song, instead of, say, God Gave Me Everything, or She's Given Up Talking. But oh well. That was followed in 1985 by Fables of the Reconstruction that was recorded in England and pretty gloomy recording sessions and gloomy album. The only tracks you need to know are Driver 8 and Can't Get There From Here. They switched things up on Life's Rich Pageant, getting a new producer and recording in John Mellencamp's studios in Belmont, Indiana. And Stipe's singing with a newfound urgency here, and he enunciates a lot better than he had been in the past albums. Although I'm still confused on whether it's I wish to meet or I wish to eat. I think the first time he says I wish to meet each one of you, whereas later on in the song it sounds much more like I wish to eat each one of you. Damn it, Stipe. Regardless, the lyrics are still a bit oblique, but not the complete meaninglessness that was all over Murmur. I'm pretty sure we got a lot of swipes at Reaganism. I mean, it did come out in 1986. Begin the Begin seems to be more about the actions, like the insurgency began and we missed it. Silence means security, silence means approval. And that line never gets out of date. Or my favorite line, the sarcastic, I looked for it and I found it. Miles Standish proud, congratulate me. It's also got that cool guitar riff that opens up the song and runs throughout it. While that was a mid-tempo song, these days seems to be more frantic paced. And I always took it as a call to action. Hey, we're young despite the years, let's speak up and speak out. And it sounds like Stipe is positioning himself as a leader of these happy throngs. Take this joy wherever, whenever. But more than anything else, it's positivity. Take this joy wherever you go. We are concerned, but we are hope despite the times. Showing that in difficult times, it's very easy to give in to cynicism and just either be complacent or just give up. But don't stop fighting. Don't stop believing in what is right. And hey, maybe someday... We'll get Trump out of office and get a leader who can actually do something about this damn coronavirus. Oh wait, that happened. <laughs>
Again, what a hell of a one-two star of the album. Very powerful songs. They complement each other very well. On the week ending March 4th, your old pal Elton John pops back in for one week at number one with Passengers. Remember when I talked about Who Wears These Shoes? That hit number one way back in June 1999? Well, this song, Passengers, comes from the same album, 1984's Breaking Hearts. The only well-known song off that album was the hit single, Sad Song, Say So Such. I mean, Say So Much. Although I might be just speaking for me, because I still heard that song quite a bit growing up in the late 80s. I don't think it's all that well-known nowadays even though Elton John still does it live. At least he did it live when I saw him in 2011. This song, Passengers, was a follow-up single to Sad Songs, and in the UK, it actually charted a few spots higher than Sad Songs at number 5. But Passengers was not released as a single here in America. Perhaps a little too political? Now, thanks to my habit of reading a lot of review sites for years, I knew of this song well before it became number 1. Namely, that it was called Passengers, and that it was a little bit of a protest song. So I took that to mean, oh, it's about how African Americans had to sit in the back of the bus back in the Jim Crow days in the 50s and 60s. But turns out, wrong decade, wrong continent. Bernie was actually writing about the native people of South Africa, who were literally passengers on a train taking them from their desolate forced homeland to their jobs. Yes, this was an anti-apartheid song. Apartheid, of course, was institutionalized racial segregation that took place in South Africa and Namibia from 1948 until the early 1990s. By 1984, it had gotten more and more opposition from the Western world, like the United States and the United Kingdom, even though both the Reagan and Thatcher governments seemed a little bit sympathetic to the cause, something called constructive engagement. There was a cultural boycott going on of Sun City, the luxury casino that was the only place where the government allowed international music. Subject of that protest song, Sun City, Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, in 1985. And of course there's Graceland, that Paul Simon album in 1986, very influential but a little bit controversial because some say Simon was breaking the boycott, appropriating the native music as his own. That's just some political context. Back to Passengers itself. Not only did Bernie Taupin base the song off of what was going on in South Africa, that whistling part in the chorus melody, he lifted both of those from a 1963 South African folk song. Just listen for yourself. Yeah, 
Smartly, they gave the original artist Phineas Mkise songwriting credits for that. So yeah, that's a little more baggage than I anticipated for this song. I still find it interesting to listen to, and it isn't typical 80s Elton John. But before I think too hard on this song, I think we should move on. After one week, Elton John gave way to the police. They had four number ones this year, and here's the first of them for one week. March 11th, Truth Hits Everybody. We will be hearing from the police four times in the year 2006. As I went out and got their box set Message in a Box that had all five of their studio albums as well as B-sides and whatnot, I was already familiar with Synchronicity, their final album, as you might recall from December 2003 when I had Synchronicity 2 at the top of my charts for two weeks. But that aside, I went through all their albums in chronological order this year, and each album had a unique number one song from it. This song was an album track from their first album, Outlandos de Mou. Pardon my French. This was their quote-unquote punk album, containing the singles Roxanne and Can't Stand Losing You. At the time, the album actually didn't get great reviews. A lot of reviewers blasted them for posing as punks, likely because in 1978, the members' ages ranged from 26, Stuart Copeland, to 36, Andy Summers. And it's a very good album and all, but you can tell that they were kind of beneath the punk scene. Too much sophisticated talent and such. I, of course, was already familiar with Roxanne for years, and Can't Stand Losing You was in my top five in September 2001. So when it came time to listen to this album, I looked for the overlooked album cuts. And let me tell you, Truth Hits Everybody fits that bill perfectly. Really, the only thing punk about that song is the speed. It's kind of like a fast pop song with rock instruments more than anything else. Almost like, say, the Buzzcocks or Undertones, both groups that were not really punk even though they got labeled as such. But as previously mentioned, the police were a lot more sophisticated than those two groups. If there's one and only one word that can describe Truth Hits Everybody, it's tight. The band's performance here is so disciplined, just so tight. Despite the fast tempo, it doesn't go off the rails. There's no huge screaming vocals or hard rock guitar solo. Instead, what's that I hear on the solo? Chimes? But yeah, the drumming is signature Stu Copeland. I'll mention Andy Summers' guitar and Sting's bass on future songs, but I just wanted to get that out about the drumming, especially in the solo parts of the song. Subject matter is a little dreary. There's only two verses, but the line that sticks out to me is at the end of the second verse, and I don't want to make a fuss about it. The only certain thing in life is death. Truth hurts, doesn't it? Or rather, truth hits everybody. Oh, that's one catchy, catchy chorus. Simple yet memorable. And once again, not overblown on Sting's part either. 
Now, even though the song was not a single, it definitely was a live standard for the group. There was a version included on Message in a Box, and I wouldn't be surprised if this got some rock radio airplay at the time. It definitely would fit on the radio somewhere. And the most amazing part? The group would only get better after this, so stay tuned. You'll like what you'll hear. I'm sure y'all are wondering, hey, where did Elvis Costello go? Well, he's back. On the week ending March 25th, 2006, he spent two weeks at the top with Ellipses This Town Ellipses. It'll make sense eventually. Just enjoy this sample. FYI, full title of this song, You're Nobody Till Everybody in This Town Thinks You're a Bastard. Doesn't fit on a Maquis, love. And that would be why he changed it to Ellipses, This Town Ellipses on the single and album release. So, this song was the opener on his 1989 album, Spike. This was his first release in three years, the last one being Blood and Chocolate, that he recorded with the attractions in a very fraught recording session. He kicked that band to the side, jumped to a major label, Warner in this case, and with major label budget money at his disposal, he was able to pick and choose whatever sidemen he wanted. As a result, the whole album has a smorgasbord of celebrity guests. Names like Roger McGuinn, Alan Toussaint, Chrissy Hind, Jim Keltner, and oh hey, Paul McCartney. This was during their period of collaboration, that resulted in songs like My Brave Face that hit number one in November 1999 on Paul McCartney's album Flowers in the Dirt. While Elvis added a little complexity to Paul's songs, Paul added a little commercial sensibility to some of Elvis's songs, most notably the big hit single off this album, Veronica, Elvis's only top 20 hit here in America. As a whole, Spike definitely sounds like the work of someone who got too big of an amount of studio funds and too much free reign. It's an overlong, inconsistent album, with moments of him trying way too hard. This Town was the follow-up to Veronica in the singles market, but did not sniff the charts here or in the UK. He even made a pretty elaborate music video for this, where he dressed up as the devil slash host of a made-up show, Babes, Bikes, and Beelzebub. I hadn't yet listened to Spike at this time. I came across this song on a compilation of music videos by Elvis Costello in which each video has his own wry commentary. On this track's commentary, he felt that maybe the song title was too long for it to be a hit single, and plus I read somewhere that he did do a radio edit where, instead of bastard, he says, Sweetheart! I gotta find that somewhere. But I can't say I'm surprised this didn't take off as a single. It's not an obvious commercial sound, 
even though the drum beat is very 1989. It's kind of a mess, really, in both the production and the structures of the song, but it's what I call unconventionally catchy. It got under my skin for sure. I was singing that chorus for weeks. And it's also fun to hear Elvis Costello sing, Thinks you're a bastard! Is there a more perfect Elvis Costello word than bastard? As per usual, I can make heads or tails of the verses. There's someone called Charlie Sadarka in the first verse. There's someone he refers to as Mr. Get Good. He moved to self-made man row. Wow, almost worthy of John Linnell. I wonder if Mr. Get Good hangs out with the ugliness man, or withered hope, or very sad sack. They must be fun at parties. Even though this was a pretty big number one on my charts, one of the biggest of the year, it marked the end of an era for me, as I felt I exhausted most of Ellis Costello's material. In June 2006, songs from his 1994 release Brutal Youth did hit my charts, the highest hitting number two. But after that, he was just absent from my charts for about ten years. It took until I saw him live in April 2016 to inspire me to listen to his post-1994 songs, and he would have more number ones starting in 2017. But for now, I bid you a fond farewell, EC. Speaking of old friends, rounding out this episode with one week at number one on April 1st, our friends Squeeze are back with Hard to Find and It's So Dirty. Here's a little bit of the first song. This indeed is the third look at Squeeze on Music Is My Radar, but the first two songs I talked about, Tempted and Black Coffee in Bed, weren't wholly representative of their sound, but these two songs fit the bill a little bit more. In the years in between Black Coffee in Bed and this one, Squeeze hit the charts several times, but couldn't quite hit number one. Their third album in 1980, Argy Bargy, had two top three songs on my charts, Pulling Muscles from the Shell and Another Nail from My Heart. Meanwhile, the two-sided hit Cool for Cats and Up the Junction was stuck at number two for two weeks in November 2004, right behind Elton John's Gray Seal and Squirrel Nut Zipper's Hell. Both of those songs, and Hard to Find and It's So Dirty, came from their second album, Cool for Cats, in 1979. It was their commercial breakthrough in the UK, as both Cool for Cats and Up the Junction topped at number two on the UK charts. It's So Dirty is a standard, fast new wave song, Not much to say about this one, but Hard to Find, to me, is one of those quintessential deep cuts on an album. Wasn't released as a single, overlooked by many, but definitely a highlight to me. I think it's because it sums up the two sides of Squeeze very well, at least the two sides that were in their new wave phase in 1979. I might have mentioned it earlier, but Squeeze are very much a two-person band, with Chris Difford, the main lyricist, and Glenn Tilbrook, the main melody writer. 
I suppose you can call Difford the Bernie Toppin to Tilbrook's Elton John. But no, that wouldn't work. Bernie Toppin never sung, nor did he play an instrument. And Difford is the main guitar player and the secondary vocalist. That croaky voice you hear singing on the verses? Yeah, that's Difford. On a given album, he only sings about two or three songs out of twelve. And later on, his voice got a little bit better. But on this song, in Cool for Cats, it's really croaky and only has about three notes in the entire verse melody. But just as you're about to turn off the song, the piano plays a few bars, and in comes Glenn Tilbrook with that wonderful chorus, it gets harder and harder so hard, with hand claps and everything. And that's just a little bit of what Tilbrook brings to the table. Gentle tenor vocals and a great sense of melody. Probably the best place to hear this on Cool for Cats is that second single, Up the Junction. Extremely quintessential squeeze song. Wonderful melody and singing. And lyrics about a young relationship that started out great, but turned to crap pretty quickly. Meanwhile, hard to find. I guess is about two lovers experimenting in the bedroom, trying to work through each other's kinky fetishes. It not quite working, thus it's hard to find. I don't know, don't think too hard. Just clap your hands to that chorus. To end this episode, let's take our usual look at Runners Up. These charts were dominated by the artists that I already listed at number one. Namely, R.E.M., The Police, a few more by Elvis Costello. The Kinks ended up having several hits in this period, mostly in the number five, number six category, like Autumn Almanac and Ape Man. Steely Dan had a number five hit earlier in the year with Dr. Wu. It wouldn't be until the next decade that I really dug into them, though. But to close out this episode, I'm going to play out a song that hit number three in a strong chart week, Number one was Wuthering Heights. Number two was Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick by Ian Drury and the Blockheads. It's Yes With Roundabout, a song that was both a classic rock radio staple and surprisingly hit the top 20 in America in 1972. As always, thank you so much for listening to Music Is My Radar. I'll see you guys next time as we continue our look at 2006. Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.